Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's January 25th, 2020. Today marks the fifth day of the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump as the President's counsel begin their arguments in defense of the President. I'm Margaret Taylor, senior editor at Lawfare. By the last three days, the House managers made their formal presentation to senators laying out their case for removing the President from office. House Manager Representative Adam Schiff gave his closing remarks to senators on Friday night. Today, in an extraordinary Saturday session in the United States Senate, White House Counsel Pat Cipollone and the rest of the defense team get their turn to make their arguments to U.S. Senators. This is the impeachment, Episode 5, the President's defense team's first day of presentations. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. While the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the Articles of Impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. White House Counsel Pat Cipollone opened the case for the defense, laying out what they believed are the stakes of the impeachment. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Senators, Leader McConnell, Democratic Leader Schumer, thank you for your time and thank you for your attention. I want to start out just very briefly giving you a short plan for today. We're going to be very respectful of your time, as Leader McConnell said. We anticipate going about two to three hours at most and to be out of here by one o'clock at the latest. We're going to focus today on two points. You heard the House manager speak for nearly 24 hours over three days. We don't anticipate using that much time. We don't believe that they have come anywhere close to meeting their burden for what they're asking you to do. In fact, we believe that when you hear the facts, and that's what we intend to cover today, the facts, you will find that the President did absolutely nothing wrong. And what we intend to do today, and we'll have more presentations in greater detail on Monday, but what we intend to do today is go through their record that they established in the House. And we intend to show you some of the evidence that they adduced in the House that they decided over their three days and 24 hours that they didn't have enough time or made a decision not to show you. And every time you see one of these pieces of evidence, ask yourself, why didn't I see that in the first three days? They had it. It came out of their process. Why didn't they show that to the Senate? And I think that's an important question, because as House managers, 
really, their goal should be to give you all of the facts because they're asking you to do something very, very consequential. And I would submit to you, to use a word that Mr. Schiff used a lot, very, very dangerous. And that's the second point that I'd ask you to keep in mind today. They're asking you not only to overturn the results of the last election, but as I've said before, they're asking you to remove President Trump from the ballot in an election that's occurring in approximately nine months. They're asking you to tear up all of the ballots across this country on your own initiative. Take that decision away from the American people. And I don't think they spent one minute of their 24 hours talking to you about the consequences of that for our country. Not one minute. They didn't tell you what that would mean for our country today, this year, and forever into our future. They're asking you to do something that no Senate has ever done. And they're asking you to do it with no evidence. And that's wrong. And I ask you to keep that in mind. I ask you to keep that in mind. So what I would do is point out one piece of evidence for you, and then I'm going to turn it over to my colleagues, and they will walk you through their record, and they will show you things that they didn't show you. Now, they didn't talk a lot about the transcript of the call, which I would submit is the best evidence of what happened on the call. And they said things over and over again that are simply not true. One of them was, there's no evidence of President Trump's interest in burden sharing. That wasn't the real reason. But they didn't tell you that burden sharing was discussed in the call, in the transcript of the call. They didn't tell you that. Why? Let me read it to you. Here's the president. And we'll go through the entire transcript. I'm not going to read the whole transcript. We'll make it available. I'm sure you have it, but we'll make available copies of the transcript so you can have it. The president said, and they read this line, I will say that we do a lot for Ukraine. We spend a lot of effort and a lot of time. But they stopped there. They didn't read the following. Much more than European countries are doing. And they should be helping you more than they are. Germany does almost nothing for you. All they do is talk. And I think it's something that you should really ask them about. When I was speaking to Angela Merkel, she talks Ukraine, but she doesn't do anything. A lot of European countries are the same way. So I think it's something you want to look at, but the United States has been very, very good to Ukraine. That's where they that's where they picked up again with the quote. But they left out the entire discussion of burden sharing. Now, what does President Zelensky say? Does he disagree? No. He agrees. They didn't tell you this. They didn't tell you this. Didn't have time in 24 hours to tell you this. Yes, you are absolutely right. 
not only 100%, but actually 100%. And I can tell you the following. I did talk to Angela Merkel, and I did meet with her, and I also met and talked with Macron, and I told them that they are not doing quite as much as they need to be doing on the issues with the sanctions. They are not enforcing the sanctions. They are not working as much as they should work for Ukraine. It turns out that even though logically the European Union should be our, should be our biggest partner, but technically the United States is a much bigger partner than the European Union. And I'm very grateful to you for that because the United States is doing quite a lot for Ukraine, much more than the European Union, especially when we are talking about sanctions against the Russian Federation. Okay. You heard a lot about the importance of confronting Russia, and we're going to talk about that. And you will hear that President Trump has a strong record on confronting Russia. You will hear that President Trump has a strong record of support for Ukraine. You will hear that from the witnesses in their record that they didn't tell you about. So that's one very important example. They come here to the Senate and they ask you, remove a president, tear up the ballots in all of your states, and they don't bother to read the key evidence of the discussion of burden sharing that's in the call itself. Now that's emblematic of their entire presentation. I'm going to turn the presentation over to my colleague, Mike Purpura. He's going to walk you through many more examples of this. And with each example, ask yourself, why am I just hearing about this now after 24 hours of sitting through arguments? Why? And the reason is, we can talk about the process, we will talk about the law, but today, we are going to confront them on the merits of their argument. Now, they have the burden of proof. And they have not come close to meeting it. In fact, and I want to ask you to think about one issue regarding process, beyond process. If you were really interested in finding out the truth, why would you run a process the way they ran? If you were really confident in your position on the facts, why would you lock everybody out of it from the president's side? Why would you do that? We will talk about the process arguments, but the process arguments also are compelling evidence on the merits because it's evidence that they themselves don't believe in the facts of their case. And the fact that they came here for 24 hours and hid evidence from you is further evidence that they don't really believe in the facts of their case. That this is, for all their talk about election interference, that they're here to perpetrate the most massive interference in an election in American history, and we can't allow that to happen. It would violate our Constitution. It would violate our history. It would violate our obligations to the future. 
And most importantly, it would violate the sacred trust that the American people have placed in you and have placed in them. The American people decide elections. They have one coming up in nine months. So we will be very efficient. We will begin our presentation today. We will show you a lot of evidence that they should have showed you. And we will finish efficiently and quickly so that we can all go have an election. Thank you, and I yield to my colleague, Michael Perpura. Here's Deputy White House Counsel Michael Perpura stating that the defense would focus on facts that he asserts House managers ignored in their presentation. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, good morning. Again, my name is Michael Perpura. I serve as Deputy Counsel to the President. It is my honor and privilege to appear before you today on behalf of President Donald J. Trump. And what is the President's response? Well, it reads like a classic organized crime shakedown. Shorn of its rambling character and in not so many words, this is the essence of what the President communicates. We've been very good to your country, very good. No other country has done as much as we have. But you know what? I don't see much reciprocity here. I hear what you want. I have a favor I want from you, though. And I'm going to say this only seven times, so you better listen good. I want you to make up dirt on my political opponent, understand lots of it, on this and on that. I'm going to put you in touch with people, not just any people. I'm going to put you in touch with Attorney General of the United States, my Attorney General, Bill Barr. He's got the whole weight of the American law enforcement behind him. And I'm going to put you in touch with Rudy. You're going to love him, trust me. You know what I'm asking, and so I'm only going to say this a few more times, in a few more ways. And by the way, don't call me again. I'll call you when you've done what I asked. This is, in sum, in character, what the president was trying to communicate. That's fake. That's not the real call. That's not the evidence here. That's not the transcript that Mr. Cipollone just referenced. And we can shrug it off and say we were making light or a joke. But that was in a hearing in the United States House of Representatives discussing the removal of the President of the United States from office. There are very few things, if any, that can be as grave and as serious. Let's stick with the evidence. Let's talk about the facts and the evidence in this case. The most important piece of evidence we have in the case and before you is the one that we began with nearly four months ago, the actual transcript of the July 25, 2019 telephone call between President Trump and President Zelensky, the real transcript. If that were the only evidence we had, it would be enough to show that the Democrats' entire theory is completely unfounded. But the transcript is far from the only evidence demonstrating that the president did nothing wrong. Once you sweep away all of the bluster and innuendo, the selective leaks, the closed-door examinations of the Democrats' hand-picked witnesses, the staged public hearings, what we're left with are six key facts that have not and will not change. First, 
The transcript shows that the President did not condition either security assistance or a meeting on anything. The paused security assistance funds aren't even mentioned on the call. Second, President Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials have repeatedly said that there was no quid pro quo and no pressure on them to review anything. Third, President Zelensky and high-ranking Ukrainian officials did not even know, did not even know, the security assistance was paused until the end of August, over a month after the July 25 call. Fourth, not a single witness testified that the President himself said that there was any connection between any investigations and security assistance, a presidential meeting, or anything else. Fifth, the security assistance flowed on September 11, and a presidential meeting took place on September 25, without the Ukrainian government announcing any investigations. Finally, the Democrats' blind drive to impeach the president does not and cannot change the fact, as attested to by the Democrats' own witnesses, that President Trump has been a better friend and stronger supporter of Ukraine than his predecessor. Those are the facts. We plan to address some of them today and some of them next week. Each one of these six facts, standing alone, is enough to sink the Democrats' case. Combined, they establish what we've known since the beginning. The President did absolutely nothing wrong. The Democrats' allegation that the President engaged in a quid pro quo is unfounded and contrary to the facts. The truth is simple, and it's right before our eyes. The President was at all times acting in our national interest and pursuant to his oath of office. But before I dive in and speak further about the facts, let me mention something that my colleagues will discuss in greater detail. The facts that I'm about to discuss today are the Democrats' facts. This is important because the House manager spoke to you for a very long time, over 21 hours, and have repeatedly claimed to you that their case is, and their evidence is overwhelming and uncontested. It's not. I'm going to share a number of facts with you this morning that the House managers didn't share with you during more than 21 hours. I'll ask you, as Mr. Cipollone already mentioned, that when you hear me say something that the House managers didn't present to you, ask yourself, why didn't they tell me that? Is that something I would have liked to have known? Why am I hearing it for the first time from the President's lawyers? It's not because they didn't have enough time, that's for sure. They only showed you a very selective part of the record, their record. And they, remember this, they have the very heavy burden of proof before you. The President is forced to mount a defense in this chamber against a record that the Democrats developed. The record that we have to go on today is based entirely on House Democratic facts pre-cleared in, in a basement bunker, not mostly entirely. Yet even those facts absolutely exonerate the President. Let's start with the transcript. The President did not link security assistance to any investigations on the July 25 call. Let's step back. On July 25, 
President Trump called President Zelensky. This was their second phone call. Both were congratulatory. On April 21st, President Trump called to congratulate President Zelensky on winning the presidential election. On July 25, the president called because President Zelensky's party had just won a large number of seats in parliament. On September 24, before Speaker Pelosi had any idea what President Trump and President Zelensky actually said on the July 25 call, she called for an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. In the interest of full transparency and to show that he had done nothing wrong, President Trump took the unprecedented, unprecedented step of declassifying the call transcript so that the American people could see for themselves exactly what the two presidents discussed. So, what did President Trump say to President Zelensky on the July 25 call? President Trump raised two issues. I'm going to be speaking about those two issues a fair amount this morning. They're the two issues that go to the core of how President Trump approaches foreign aid. When it comes to sending U.S. taxpayer money overseas, the President is focused on burden sharing and corruption. First, the President, rightly, had real concerns about whether European and other countries were contributing their fair share to ensuring Ukraine's security. Second, corruption. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine has suffered from one of the worst environments for corruption in the world. A parade of witnesses testified in the House about the pervasive corruption in Ukraine and how it is in America's foreign policy and national security interests to help Ukraine combat corruption. Turning to the call, right off the bat, President Trump mentioned burden sharing to President Zelensky. President Trump told President Zelensky that Germany does almost nothing for you. And a lot of European countries are the same way. President Trump specifically mentioned speaking to Angela Merkel of Germany, whom he said talks Ukraine, but she doesn't do anything. President Zelensky agreed. You are absolutely right. He said that he spoke with the leaders of, Ger of Germany and France and told them that they are not doing quite as much as they need to be doing. So right at the beginning of the call, President Trump was talking about burden sharing. President Trump then turned to corruption in the form of foreign interference in the 2016 presidential election. There is absolutely nothing wrong with asking a foreign leader to help get to the bottom of all forms of foreign interference in an American presidential election. You'll hear more about that later from one of my colleagues. What else did the president say? The president also warned President Zelensky that he appeared to be surrounding himself with some of the same people as his predecessor and suggested that a very fair and very good prosecutor was shut down by some very bad people. Again, one of my colleagues will speak more about that. The content of the July 25 call was in line with the Trump administration's legitimate concerns about corruption and reflected the hope that President Zelensky, who campaigned on a platform of reform, would finally clean up Ukraine. So what did President Trump and President Zelensky discuss in the July 25 call? Two issues, burden sharing, corruption. Just as importantly, what wasn't discussed on the July 25 call? There was no discussion of the paused security assistance on the July 25 call. House Democrats keep pointing to President Zelensky's statement that I would also like to thank you for your great support in the area of defense. But he wasn't talking there about the pause security assistance. 
he tells us in the very next sentence exactly what he was talking about, javelin missiles. We are ready, President Zelensky continues, to continue to cooperate for the next step specifically. We are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. Javelins are the anti-tank missiles only made available to the Ukrainians by President Trump. President Obama refused to give javelins to the Ukrainians for years. Javelin sales were not part, were not part of the security assistance that had been paused at the time of the call. Javelin sales have nothing to do with the paused security assistance. Those are different programs entirely. But don't take my word for it. Both former Ambassador to Ukraine Marie Ivanovich and NSC Senior Director Timothy Morrison confirmed that the Javelin missiles and the security assistance were unrelated. The House managers didn't tell you about Ambassador Yovanovitch's and Tim Morrison's testimony. Why not? They couldn't have taken two to five minutes out of 21 hours to make sure you understood that the Javelin sales being discussed were not part of the pause security assistance. This puts the following statement by President Trump in a whole new light, doesn't it? I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows a lot about it. As everyone knows by now, President Trump asked President Zelensky to do us a favor. And he made clear that us referred to our country and not himself. More importantly, the President was not connecting. Do us a favor to the javelin sales that President Zelensky mentioned. It makes no sense in the, in the language there. But even if he had been, the javelin sales were not part of the security assistance that had been temporarily paused. I want to be very clear about this. When the House Democrats claim that the javelin sales discussed on the July 25 call are part of the pause security assistance, it is misleading. They are trying to confuse you and just sort of wrap everything in instead of unpacking it the right way. There was no mention of the pause security assistance on the call and certainly not from President Trump. As you know, head of state calls are staffed by a number of aides on both sides. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, the detailee at the National Security Council, raised a concern about the call. And that was just a policy concern. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman admitted that he did not know whether there was a crime or anything of that nature, but he had deep policy concerns. Policy concerns. So there you have it. But the President, the President sets the foreign policy. In a democracy such as ours, the elected leaders make foreign policy, while the unelected staff, such as Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, implement the policy. Other witnesses were on the July 25 call and had very different reactions than that of Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, National Security Advisor to the Vice President, former Acting National Security Advisor, and a long-serving and highly decorated veteran attended the call. According to General Kellogg, I was on the much-reported July 25 call between President Donald Trump and President Zelensky. As an exceedingly proud member of the Trump administration, of President Trump's administration, and as a 34-year highly experienced combat veteran who retired with the rank of Lieutenant General in the Army, I heard nothing wrong or improper on the call. I had and have no concerns. The House managers said that other witnesses were also troubled by the July 25 call and identified those witnesses as Jennifer Williams and Tim Morrison. 
Jennifer Williams, who works for Lieutenant General Kellogg, now claims that she has concerns about the call. You heard that from the House managers. They were very careful in the way they worded that. What they didn't tell you is that Ms. Williams was so troubled at the time of the call that she told exactly zero people of her concern. She told no one for two months following the call, not one person. Ms. Williams didn't raise any concerns about the call when it took place, not with Lieutenant General Kellogg, not with counsel, not with anyone. Ms. Williams waited to announce her concerns until Speaker Pelosi publicly announced her impeachment inquiry. The House managers didn't tell you that. Why not? Tim Morrison, who is Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's boss, was also on the call. Mr. Morrison reported the call to the National Security Council lawyers not because he was troubled by anything on the call, but because he was worried about leaks and, in his words, how it would play out in Washington's polarized environment. I want to be clear, Mr. Morrison testified, I was not concerned that anything illegal was discussed. Mr. Morrison further testified that there was nothing improper and nothing illegal about anything that was said on the call. In fact, Mr. Morrison repeatedly testified that he disagreed with Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's assessment that President Trump made demands of President Zelensky, or that he said anything improper at all. Here's Mr. Morrison. In that transcript, does the President not ask Zelensky to look into the Bidens? Mr. Chairman, I can only tell you what I was thinking at the time. That is not what I understood the President to be doing. Do you believe in your opinion that the President of the United States demanded the President Zelensky undertake these investigations? No, sir. And you didn't hear the President make a demand, did you? No, sir. Again, there were no demands from your perspective, Mr. Morrison. That is correct, sir. But is it fair to say that uh, as you were listening to the call, you weren't thinking, wow, the president's, uh, President is bribing the President of Ukraine? That never crossed your mind? It did not, sir. Or that he was extorting the President of the Ukraine? It did or, not, sir. Or doing anything improper? Correct, sir. Significantly, the Ukrainian government never raised any concerns about the July 25 call. Just hours after the call, Ambassador William Taylor, head of the U.S. mission in Ukraine, had dinner with then, the then Secretary of the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council, who seemed to think that the call went fine, the call went well. He wasn't disturbed by anything. The House managers didn't tell you that. Why not? Ambassador Kurt Volker, the U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine, was not on the call. But Ambassador Volker spoke regularly with President Zelensky and other top officials in the Ukraine government, and even met with President Zelensky the day after the call. He testified that in no way, shape, or form, in either the readouts from the United States or Ukraine, did he receive any indication whatsoever for anything that resembles a quid pro quo on the July 25 call. Here's Ambassador Volker. And in fact, the day after the call, you met with President Zelensky. This would be on July 26th. That's correct. And in that meeting, he made no mention of quid pro quo. No. He made no mention of withholding the aid. No. He made no mention of bribery. No. So the fact is the Ukrainians were not even aware of this hold on aid. Is that correct? That's correct. They didn't tell you about this testimony from Ambassador Volker. Why not? 
President Zelensky himself has confirmed on at least three separate occasions that his July 25 call with President Trump was a good phone call and normal and that nobody pushed me. When President Zelensky's advisor, Andrei Yermak, was asked if he had ever felt there was a connection between the U.S. military aid and the request for investigations, he was adamant that we never had that feeling, and we did not have the feeling that this aid was connected to any one specific issue. Of course, the best evidence that there was no pressure or quid pro quo is the statements of the Ukrainians themselves. The fact that President Zelensky himself felt no pressure on the call and did not perceive there to be any connection between security assistance and investigations would, in any ordinary case, in any court, be totally fatal to the prosecution. The judge would throw it out, the case would be over, what more do you need to know? The House team knows that. They know the record inside out, upside down, left and right. So what do they do? How do they try to overcome the direct words from President Zelensky and his administration that they felt no pressure. They tell you that the Ukrainians must have felt pressure, regardless of what they've said. They try to overcome the devastating evidence against them by, apparently, claiming to be mind readers. They know what's in President Zelensky's mind better than President Zelensky does. President Zelensky said he felt no pressure. The House managers tell you they know better. And this is really a theme of the House case. I want you to remember this. Every time the Democrats say that President Trump made demands or issued a quid pro quo to President Zelensky on the July 25 call, they are saying that President Zelensky and his top advisors are being untruthful. And they acknowledge what the, that's what they're saying. They've said it over the past few days. Tell me how that helps. Tell me how that helps. U.S. foreign policy and national security to say that about our friends. We know there was no quid pro quo on the call. We know that from the transcript. But the call is not the only evidence showing that there was no quid pro quo. There couldn't possibly have been a quid pro quo because the Ukrainians did not even know that the security assistance was on hold until it was reported in the media by Politico at the end of August, more than a month after the July 25 call. Think about this. The Democrats accused the President of leveraging security assistance to supposedly force President Zelensky to announce investigations. But how can that possibly be when the Ukrainians were not even aware that the security assistance was paused? There can't be a threat without the person knowing he's being threatened. There can't be a quid pro quo without the quo. Ambassador Volker testified that the Ukrainians did not know about the hold until reading about it in Politico. Ambassador Taylor and Tim Morrison both agreed. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent testified that no Ukrainian official contacted him about the paused security assistance until that first intense week in September. Let's hear from the four of them. I believe the Ukrainians became aware of the hold on August 29th and not before. That date is the first time any of them asked me about the hold by forwarding an article that had been published in Politico. It was only after August 29th, when the Politico article came out, that I got calls from, the, from several of the Ukrainian officials. 
You mentioned the August 28th Politico article. Was that the first time that you believe the Ukrainians may have um, had a real sense that the aid was on hold? Yes. Mr. Kent, had you had any Ukrainian official contacting you concerned about, when was the first time a Ukrainian official contacted you concerned about potential withholding of USAID? It was after the article in Politico came out uh, in that first intense week of September. That it wasn't until the, the Politico article that... That's correct. I received a text message uh, from one of my Ukrainian counterparts on August 29th forwarding that article, and that's the first they raised it with me. The House managers didn't show you this testimony from any of these four witnesses. Why not? Why didn't they give you the context of this testimony? And think about this as well. If the Ukrainians had been aware of the review on security assistance, they of course would have said something. There were numerous high-level diplomatic meetings between senior Ukrainian and U.S. officials during the summer, after the review on the security assistance began, but before President Zelensky learned of the hold through the Politico article. If the Ukrainians had known about the hold, they would have raised it in one of those meetings. Yet the Ukrainians didn't say anything about the hold at a single one of those meetings. Not on July 9, not on July 10, not on July 25, not on July 26, not on August 27. At none of those meetings, none of those meetings, did the Ukrainians mention the pause on security assistance. Ambassador Volker testified that he was regularly in touch with the senior highest level officials in the Ukrainian government. And Ukrainian officials would confide things and would have asked if they had any questions about the aid. Nobody said a word to Ambassador Volker until the end of August. Then within hours of the Politico article being published, Mr. Yermak texted Ambassador Volker with a link to the article and to ask about the report. In other words, as soon as the Ukrainians learned about the hold, they asked about it. Now, Mr. Schiff said something during the 21 hours or more than 21 hours that he and his team spoke that I actually agree with which is when he talked about common sense. Many of us at the tables and in the room are former prosecutors at the state, federal, or military level. Prosecutors talk a lot about common sense. Common sense comes into play right here. The top Ukrainian official said nothing, nothing at all, to their U.S. counterparts during all of these meetings about the pause on security assistance. But then, boom. Soon as the political article comes out, suddenly, in that first intense week of September, in George Kent's words, security assistance was all they wanted to talk about. What must we conclude if we're using our common sense? That they didn't know about the pause until the political article on August 28th. No activity before, article comes out, flurry of activity. That's common sense, and it's absolutely fatal to the House manager's case. The House managers are aware that the Ukrainians' lack of knowledge on the hold is fatal to their case, and so they've desperately tried to muddy the water. The managers told you that Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Laura Cooper presented two, two emails, two emails that people on her staff received from people at the State Department regarding conversations with people at the Ukraine Embassy that could have been about 
U.S. security assistance to Ukraine. What they did not tell you is that Ms. Cooper testified that she could not say for certain whether the emails were about the pause on security assistance. She couldn't say one way or the other. She also testified that she didn't want to speculate about the meaning of the words in the emails. The House managers also didn't tell you. Ms. Cooper testified that I reviewed my calendar, and the only meeting where I can recall a Ukrainian official raising the issue of security assistance with me is on September 5th at the Ukrainian Independence Day celebration. The House managers didn't tell you that. The House managers also mentioned that one of Ambassador Volker's, one of Ambassador Volker's advisors, Catherine Croft, claimed that the Ukrainian embassy officials learned about the pause earlier than the political article. But when asked when she heard from the Ukraine embassy officials, Ms. Croft admitted that she can't remember those specifics and did not think that she took notes. Ms. Croft also did not remember when news of the hold became public. Remember, though, that Ambassador Volker, her boss, who was in regular contact with President Zelensky and the top Ukrainian aides, was very clear that I believe the Ukrainians became aware of the hold on August 29th and not before. This is all the House managers have. In contrast to the testimony of Volker, Taylor, Morrison, and Kent. The text from Yermak, the words of the high-ranking Ukrainians themselves, and the flurry of activity that began on August 28th. And that's the evidence that they want you to consider as a basis to remove the duly elected President of the United States. The bottom line is it is not possible for the brief security assistance review to have been used as leverage when President Zelensky and the other top Ukrainian officials did not know about it. That's what you need to know. That's what the House managers didn't tell you. The House managers know how important this issue is. When we briefly mentioned it a few days ago, they told us we needed to check our facts. We did. We're right. President Zelensky and his top aides did not know about the pause on security assistance at the time of the July 25 call and did not know about it until August 28 when the Politico article was published. We know there was no quid pro quo on the July 25 call. We know the Ukrainians did not know that security assistance had been paused at the time of the call. There is simply no evidence anywhere that President Trump ever linked security assistance to any investigations. Most of the Democrats' witnesses have never spoken to the President at all, let alone about Ukraine security assistance. The two people in the House record who asked President Trump about whether there was any linkage between security assistance and investigations were told in no uncertain terms that there's no connection between the two. When Ambassador to the European Union Gordon Sondland asked the President in approximately the September 9 time frame, the President told him, I want nothing, I want nothing, I want no quid pro quo. Even earlier, on August 31, Senator Ron Johnson asked the President if there was any connection between security assistance and investigations. The President answered, no way. I would never do that. Who told you that? Two witnesses, Ambassador Taylor and Tim Morrison, said they came to believe security assistance was linked to investigations. But both witnesses based this belief entirely on what they heard from Ambassador Sondland before Ambassador Sondland spoke to the President. Neither Taylor nor Morrison ever spoke to the President about the matter. How did Ambassador Sondland come to believe 
that there was any connection between security assistance and investigations. Again, the House managers didn't tell you. Why not? In his public testimony, Ambassador Sondland used variations of the words assume, presume, guess, speculate, and belief over 30 times. So, you really have no testimony today that ties President Trump to a scheme to withhold aid from Ukraine in exchange for these investigations? Other than my own presumption. When he was done presuming, assuming, and guessing, Ambassador Sondland finally decided to ask President Trump directly, what does the president want from Ukraine? Here's the answer. President Trump, when I asked him the open-ended question, as I testified previously, what do you want from Ukraine? His answer was, I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. Tell Zelensky to do the right thing. That's all I got from President Trump. The president was unequivocal. Ambassador Sondland stated that this was the final word he heard from the president of the United States. And once he learned this, he text messaged ambassadors Taylor and Volcker. The president has been crystal clear, no quid pro quos of any kind. If you are skeptical of Ambassador Sondland's testimony, it was corroborated by the statement of one of your colleagues, Senator Johnson. Senator Johnson also had heard from Ambassador Sondland that the security assistance might be linked to the investigations. So on August 31, Senator Johnson asked the President directly whether there was some kind of arrangement where Ukraine would take some action and the hold would be lifted. Again, President Trump's answer was crystal clear. No way. I would never do that. Who told you that? As Senator Johnson wrote, I have accurately characterized his reaction as adamant, vehement, and angry. They didn't tell you about Senator Johnson's letter. Why not? The Democrats' entire quid pro quo theory is based on nothing more than the initial speculation of one person, Ambassador Sondland. That speculation is wrong. Jay Sekulow, the president's attorney, then rose to provide a further factual defense of the president's actions toward Ukraine. Let's for a moment put ourselves in the shoes of the president of the United States right now. Before he was sworn into office, he was subjected to an investigation by the Federal Bureau of Investigation called Crossfire Hurricane. The president, within six months of his inauguration, found a special counsel being appointed to investigate a Russia collusion theory. In their opening statement, several members of the House managers tried to once again relitigate the Mueller case. Here's the bottom line. This is part one of the Mueller report. This part alone is 199 pages. The House managers in the presentation a couple of times referenced uh, this for that. Let me tell you something. This cost $32 million. This investigation took 2,800 subpoenas. This investigation had 500 search warrants. This had 230 orders for communication records. This had 500 witness interviews, all to reach the following conclusion. And I'm going to quote from the Mueller report itself. It can be found on page 173. As it relates to this whole matter of collusion and conspiracy. Ultimately, these are the words of Bob Mueller in his report, this investigation did not establish that the campaign coordinated 
or conspired with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Let me say that again. This, the Mueller report, resulted in this. That for this. Ultimately, the investigation did not establish that the campaign coordinated or conspired with the Russian government in its election-related interference activities. This for that. In his summation on Thursday night, Manager Schiff complained that the President chose not to go with the determination of his intelligence agencies regarding foreign interference and instead decided that he would listen to people that he trusted and he would inquire about the Ukraine issue himself. Mr. Schiff did not like the fact that the President did not apparently blindly trust some of the advice he was being given by the intelligence agencies. First of all, let me be clear. Disagreeing with the President's decision on foreign policy matters or whose advice he's going to take is in no way an impeachable offense. So as we begin introducing our arguments, I, I want to correct a couple of things in the record as well. That's what we're doing today. We into, really intend to show over the next several days that the evidence is actually really overwhelming that the President did nothing wrong. Mr. Schiff and his colleagues repeatedly told you that the intelligence community assessment that Russia was acting alone, responsible for the election interference, implying that this somehow debunked the idea that there might be in, you know, interference from other countries, including Ukraine. Mr. Nadler deployed a similar argument saying that President Trump thought, quote, Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in our last presidential election. And this is basically what we call a straw man argument. Let me be clear. The House managers, in over a 23-hour period, kept pushing this false dichotomy that it was either Russia or Ukraine, but not both. They kept telling you the, that the conclusion of the intelligence community and Mr. Mueller was Russia alone with regard to the 2016 elections. Of course, that's not the report that Bob Mueller wrote focused on Russian interference, although there is some information in letters regarding Ukraine, and I'm going to point to those in a few moments. In fact, let me report to, I think we'll talk about those letters right now. This is a letter dated May 4, 2018, to Mr. Yuri Lysenko, the general prosecutor for the Office of the Prosecutor General of Ukraine. It was a letter requesting that his office cooperate with the Mueller investigation involving uh, Ukraine issues and issues involving Ukraine government or law enforcement officials. It's signed by Senator Menendez, Senator Leahy, and Senator Durbin. I'm doing this to put this in an entire perspective. House managers tried to tell you that the importance, remember the whole discussion, and, and my colleague, Mr. Papura, talked about this, between President Zelensky and President Trump and the bilateral meeting in the Oval Office at the White House, as if an article of impeachment could be based upon a meeting not taking place in the White House, but taking place someplace else, like the United Nations General Assembly, where it, in fact, did take place. Now, Dr. Fiona Hill was quite clear in saying that a White House meeting would supply the new Ukrainian government with the, quote, legitimacy it needed, especially vis-a-vis -vis the Russians, and that Ukraine's viewed the White House meeting as a recognition of their legitimacy, legitimacy as a sovereign state. But here's what they did not play. Here's what they did not tell you. And I'm going to quote from Dr. Hill's testimony on page 145 of her transcript. These are her words. 
This is what she said under oath. It wasn't always a White House meeting per se, but definitely a presidential-level meeting. You know, a meeting with Zelensky and the president. I mean, it could have taken place in Poland, in Warsaw. It could have been, you know, a proper bilateral in some other context. But in other words, a White House-level presidential meeting. That can be found on page 145. And contrary to what Manager Schiff and some of the other managers told you, is this meeting did, did in fact occur. It occurred at the UN General Assembly on September 25th, 2019. Those were the words of Dr. Hill that you did not hear. This case is really not about presidential wrongdoing. This entire impeachment process is about the House manager's insistence that they are able to read everybody's thoughts, they can read everybody's intention, even when the principal speakers, the witnesses themselves, insist that those interpretations are wrong. Here's Pat Philbin, Deputy White House Counsel, who focused his presentation on the second article of impeachment, Obstruction of Congress. Mr. Sekulow said I'm going to touch on a couple of issues related to obstruction and due process. Uh, Just to hit on some points before we go into more detail in the rest of our presentation. Um, I'd like to start with one of the points that Manager Jeffries focused a lot on towards the end of the presentation yesterday related to the obstruction charge in the second article of impeachment. Because he tried to portray a, a picture of what he called blanket defiance that there was a response from the Trump administration that was simply, we won't cooperate with anything, we won't give you any documents, we won't do anything, and it was blanket defiance, really without explanation, that that was all there was, was just an assertion that we wouldn't cooperate. And he said, and I pulled this from the transcript, that President Trump's objections are not generally rooted in the law and are not legal arguments. That's simply not true. That's simply not true. In every instance, when there was resistance to a subpoena, resistance to a subpoena for a witness or for documents, there was a legal explanation of the justification for it. For example, they focused a lot on an October 8th letter from the counsel to the president, Pat Cipollone, but they didn't show you an October 18th letter, which is up on the screen now, that went through in detail why subpoenas that had been issued by manager Schiff's committees were invalid because the House has not authorized your committees to conduct any such inquiry or to subpoena information in furtherance of it. And that was because the House had not taken a vote to authorize the committee to exercise the power of impeachment to issue any compulsory process, as we have in the past, in a manner consistent with well-established bipartisan constitutional protections and a respect for the separation of powers enshrined in the Constitution, end quote. It was Manager Schiff and his committees that did not want to engage in any accommodation process. We had said that we were willing to explore that. The House managers have also asserted a number of times, this came up on that first long night when we were here until two as well, that the Trump administration never asserted executive privilege, never asserted executive privilege. And I explained at the time, that's technically true, but misleading. Misleading because the rationale on which the subpoenas were resisted 
never depended on an assertion of executive privilege. Each of the rationales that we have offered, and I'll go into the one of them today, that the House subpoenas were not authorized, does not depend on making that formal assertion of executive privilege. It's a different legal rationale. The subpoenas weren't authorized because there was no vote, or the subpoenas were to senior advisors to the president who are immune from congressional compulsion, or the subpoenas were forcing executive branch officials to testify without the presence of agency counsel, which is a separate legal infirmity, again supported by an opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. But let me turn to the specific issue of the invalidity of the subpoenas because they weren't supported by a vote of the House authorizing manager Schiff's committees to exercise the power of impeachment to issue compulsory process. Manager Jeffries said that there were no Supreme Court precedents suggesting such a requirement and that every investigation into a presidential impeachment in history has begun without a vote from the House. And those statements simply aren't accurate. There is Supreme Court precedent explaining very clearly the principle that a committee of either House of Congress gets its authority only by a resolution from the parent body. United States versus Rumley and Watkins versus United States make this very clear. And it's common sense. The Constitution assigns the sole power of impeachment to the House of Representatives, to the House, not to any member, not to a subcommittee. And that authority can be delegated to a committee to use only by a vote of the House. It would be the same here in the Senate. The Senate has the sole power to try impeachments. But if there were no rules that had been adopted by the Senate, would you think that the majority leader himself could simply decide that he would have a committee receive evidence, handle that, submit a recommendation to the Senate, and that would be the way that the trial would occur without a vote from the Senate to give authority to that committee? I don't think so. It doesn't make sense. That's not the way the Constitution assigns that authority. So why does it matter? It matters because the Constitution places that authority in the House and ensures that there is a democratic check on the exercise of that authority, that there will have to be a vote by the full House before there can be a proceeding to start inquiring into impeaching the President of the United States. One of the things that the framers were most concerned about in impeachment was the potential for a partisan impeachment, a partisan impeachment that was being pushed merely by a faction. And a way to ensure a check on that is to require democratic accountability from the full House to have a vote from the entire House before an inquiry can proceed. That didn't happen here. It was only after five weeks of hearings that the House decided to have a vote. And what that meant at the outset was that all of the subpoenas that were issued under the law, the Supreme Court cases I discussed, all of those subpoenas were invalid. And that is what the Trump administration pointed out specifically to the House. That was the reason for not responding to them. Because under long settled precedent, 
There had to be a vote from the House to give authority, and the administration would not respond to subpoenas that were invalid. So the president was given a choice of participating in a, a process that was going to already have the outcome determined, the speaker had already said articles of impeachment are going to be drafted, and where there were no plans to hear from any fact witnesses. That's not due process. And that's why the president declined to participate in that process. Because the Judiciary Committee had already decided they were going to accept an ex parte record developed in manager Schiff's process, and there was no point in participating in that. So the idea that there was due process offered to the president is simply not accurate. The entire proceedings in the House, from the time of the September 4th press conference until the Judiciary Committee began marking up articles of impeachment on December 11th, lasted 78 days. It's the fastest investigatory process for a presidential impeachment in history. And for 71 days of that process, for 71 days of the hearings and the taking of deposition and hearing testimony, the president was completely locked out. He couldn't be represented by counsel. He couldn't cross-examine witnesses. He couldn't present evidence. He couldn't present witnesses for 71 of the 78 days. That's not due process. And it goes to a point that Mr. Cipollone raised earlier. Why would you have a process like that? What does that tell you about the process? As we've pointed out a couple of times, cross-examination in our legal system is regarded as the greatest legal engine ever invented for the discovery of truth. It's essential. The Supreme Court has said in Goldberg versus Kelly, for any determination that's important, that requires determining facts, cross-examination has been one of the keys for due process. Why did they design a mechanism here where the president was locked out and denied the ability to cross-examine witnesses? It's because they weren't really interested in getting at the facts and the truth. They had a timetable to meet. They wanted to have impeachment done by Christmas, and that's what they were striving to do. And at first, when things started, it seemed like everyone agreed that we should hear from the whistleblower, including Manager Schiff. And I think we have what he said. But yes, we would love to talk directly with the whistleblower. We'll get the unfiltered testimony of that whistleblower. We don't need the whistleblower. What changed? At first, Manager Schiff agreed we should hear the unfiltered testimony from the whistleblower. But then he changed his mind. And he suggested that it was because now we had the transcript. But the second clip there was from uh, September 29th, which was four days after the transcript had been released. But there was something else that came into play. And that was something that Manager Schiff had said earlier when he was asked about whether he had spoken to the whistleblower. Uh, we have not spoken directly with the whistleblower. Uh, we would like to. And it turned out that that statement was not truthful. 
Around October 2nd or 3rd, it was exposed that the manager Schiff's staff, at least, had spoken with the whistleblower before the whistleblower filed the complaint and potentially had given some guidance, some sort, to the whistleblower. And after that point, it became critical to shut down any inquiry into the whistleblower. And during the House hearings, of course, Manager Schiff was in charge. He was chairing the hearings. And that creates a real problem from a due process perspective, from a search for truth perspective, because he was an interested fact witness at that point. He had a reason, since he had been caught out saying something that wasn't truthful about that contact, he had a reason to not want that inquiry. And it was he who ensured that there wasn't any inquiry into that. Now, this is relevant here, I think, because as you've heard from my colleagues, a lot of what we've heard over the past 23 hours, over the past three days, has been from Chairman Schiff. And he has been telling you things like, what's in President Trump's head? What's in President Zelensky's head? It's all his interpretation of the facts and the evidence, trying to pull inferences out of things. And there's a, another statement that Chairman Schiff made that I think we have on video. But you admit that, it's uh, a circum all you have right now is a circumstantial case. Uh, actually, no, Chuck. Uh, I, I can tell you that the case is more than that. Uh, and I can't go into the particulars, but there is more than circumstantial evidence now. So um, again, I think... So you Director have Clapper, seen direct evidence of collusion? Uh, I don't want to go into specifics, but I will say that there is evidence that is not circumstantial uh, and, uh, and is very much worthy of investigation. So that was in March of 2017 when Chairman Schiff, as ranking member of HIPSI, was telling the public, the American public, that he had more than circumstantial evidence through his position on HIPSI that President Trump's campaign had colluded with Russia. Now, of course, the Mueller report, as Mr. Sekulow pointed out, after $32 million and over 500 search warrants, or roughly 500 search warrants, determined that there was no collusion, that that wasn't true. And I, I, we wanted to point these things out simply because for this reason. Chairman Schiff has made so much of the House's case about the credibility of interpretations that the House managers want to place on not hard evidence, just but on inferences. They want to tell you what President Trump thought. They want to tell you, don't believe what Zelensky said. We can tell you what Zelensky actually thought. Don't believe what the other Ukrainians actually said about not being pressured. We can tell you what they actually thought. That it is very relevant to know whether the assessments of evidence he's presented in the past are accurate. And we would submit that they have not been, and that that is relevant for your consideration. With that, how are you? White House Counsel Pat Cipollone 
defended President Trump against the charge that he abused his power by withholding a meeting from the president of Ukraine. I have good news. Just a few more minutes from us today. But I want to point out a couple of points. Number one, just to follow up on what Mr. Philbin just told you. Do you know who else didn't show up in the Judiciary Committee to answer questions about his report in the way Ken Starr did in the Clinton impeachment? Ken Starr was subjected to cross-examination by the President's counsel. Do you know who didn't show up in the Judiciary Committee? Chairman Schiff. He did not show up. He did not give Chairman Nadler the respect of appearing before his committee and answering questions from his committee. He did send his staff, but why didn't he show up? Another good question you should think about. Now, they've come here today, and they basically said, let's cancel an election over a meeting with the Ukraine, with Ukraine. And as my colleagues have shown, they failed to give you key facts about the meeting and lots of other evidence that they produced themselves. But let's talk about the meeting. They said it was all about an invitation to a meeting. If you look at the first transcript, at the first transcript, the President said to President Zelensky, when you're settled in and ready, I'd like to invite you to the White House. We'll have a lot of things to talk about, but we're with you all the way. And President Zelensky said, well, thank you for the invitation. We accept the invitation and look forward to the visit. Thank you again. Then President Zelensky got a letter on May 29th inviting him again to come to the White House. And then, going back to the transcript of the July 25th call, again a part of the call that they didn't talk to you about, President Trump said, whenever would you would like to come to the White House, feel free to call. Give us a date and we'll work that out. I look forward to seeing you. President Zelensky replied, thank you very much. I would be very happy to come and would be Happy to meet with you personally and get to know you better. I'm looking forward to our meeting, and I also would like to invite you to visit Ukraine and come to the city of Kyiv, which is a beautiful city. We have a beautiful country which would welcome you. Then he said, on the other hand, I believe on September 1, we will be in Poland, and we can meet in Poland, hopefully. Now, they didn't read you that part of the transcript, and they didn't tell you what happened. A meeting in Poland was scheduled. President Trump was scheduled to go to Poland. He was scheduled to meet with President Zelensky. What happened? President Trump couldn't go to Poland. Why? Because there was a hurricane in the United States. And he thought it would be better for him to stay here to help deal with the hurricane. So the vice president went. Why didn't they tell you that? Why didn't they tell you that President Zelensky suggested, hey, how about we meet in Poland? Why didn't you tell them that that meeting was scheduled and had to be canceled for a hurricane? Why?
So that was our first question that we asked you. You heard a lot of facts that they didn't tell you. Facts that are critical. Facts that they know completely collapse their case on the facts. Now, you heard a lot from them. You're not going to hear facts from the president's lawyers. They're not going to talk to you about the facts. That's all we've done today. And ask yourself, ask yourself, given the facts you heard today that they didn't tell you, who doesn't want to talk about the facts? Who doesn't want to talk about the facts? The American people paid a lot of money for those facts. They paid a lot of money for this investigation. And they didn't bother to tell you. Ask yourself why. If they don't want to be fair to the president, at least out of respect for all of you, they should be fair to you. They should tell you these things. And when they don't tell you these things, it means something. So think about that. Impeachment shouldn't be a shell game. They should give you the facts. That's all we have for today. We ask you, out of respect, to think about, think about whether what you've heard would really suggest to anybody anything other that would be completely irresponsible abuse of power to do what they're asking you to do. To stop an election, to interfere in an election, and to remove the President of the United States from the ballot? Let the people decide for themselves. That's what the founders wanted. That's what we should all want. And with that, I thank you for your attention, and I look forward to seeing you on Monday. The, major the majority leader is recognized. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, I ask unanimous consent the trial adjourn until 1 p.m. Monday, January 27th, and that this order also constitute the adjournment of the Senate. Without objection, so ordered, the Senate is adjourned. At 12.02, the Senate is adjourned, ending the day's impeachment proceedings. On Monday, the Senate will resume, where the President's defense will continue their case against impeachment. Thank you for listening. The Impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, supervising producer Megan Adolsky, creative producer Shar Dreyer, executive producer Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest, Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. Special thanks to Caitlin Riley and John Weiss. The impeachment will continue tomorrow. Until next time.